we got you know <laughs> every start the, the the beauty of 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 um you know someone someone asked me someone asked me um was it what is it yesterday or the day before they they asked are you would you guys ever consider doing this live and <laughs> with these amazing stars <laughs> i don't know i don't know if that's really really a good idea But you know what I do? I, I do like the fact that we do this podcast and I do like the fact that by doing this, we're also giving ourselves a bit of a summary over what we've been working on uh, this, the, 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 the previous week, right? So I'm going to kick this off by asking you, what have you been up to the last week? I mean, mostly podcast related stuff. The last few days I got back into uh, working on Bonsai DB, which is uh, the database I, I work on that you guys are going to hear on every episode, probably <laughs> as a name drop, because my main project um and it's probably what we're going to use for data storage for our uh, our engine that we're going to be working on um but the other thing was that you know with a podcast you kind of want to know how many people are listening to it and um i decided to do hosting for this podcast using just a basic nginx web server using a zola static site uh a statically generated website um so it's very basic but that also means that the only analytics that I would have access to would be to analyze the log files um, that Nginx uh, spits out. Um, and I looked at some of the off-the-shelf off software, and most of it just produced reports that weren't super relevant to what I cared about from trying to listen, you know, trying to figure out how many people are listening. Um, and so I ended up rolling my own little log analyzer that's kind of purpose-built so I know exactly how it counts episode listens. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the project I've been working on. Um, got a wonderfully uh, programmer-friendly uh, dashboard that is a single HTML table, <laughs> which, uh, works, <laughs> which should work nicely for, for all browsers, thankfully. Um, you know, but now uh, someday I'd love to have some graphs on it and stuff. But you know, for now, all I really cared about is that we're not preserving uh, potentially uh, private data, uh, personal data like IP addresses. Um, they, they still come in the Nginx logs, but uh, those get rotated after 14 days. So uh, this persistent storage uh, only has fully aggregate data, um, not even hashed IPs or anything. It's just raw counts. Basically. So um, I feel good that we're not potentially going to have any private data, not that people's listening habits of our podcast would ever be <laughs> something people should have to worry about. <laughs> but still, it's just nice to know that we're we're not leaking that. So I don't know. Uh, what have you been working on, or do you have questions about about what what I've been working on? Well, I can I can go um, I can talk a little bit briefly about what I have been working yeah. on, and I have been working on um, I've been I've been working on um, disproving the need for tests. That is not what I've been working on, but uh, as sort of a side effect uh, of of trying to make everything a compiler, and I feel like this is a bit of a fun challenge when you program Rust. If you can leverage the type system, then do so, and you get a compiler instead of a runtime error, right? Um, uh, so, so yes. Uh, anyway, so I've been I've been working with the, with the type system on trying to make something that is very generic, and basically the way to to use it at this point is sort of just follow the error messages, right? And you kind of you set up your types, 
And then you just be more and more specific. You assign what types you want to your associated types and, and all these things. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm being very vague about what this actually is, right? I'm going to get to that point in a second, but, but this, this has been really fun exercise in seeing how generic you can actually make something. And I know it's a little bit gratuitous, right? Because we don't have to be that generic in our own projects. We can be very specific, but there is something quite nice about adding this kind of generic thing and then disconnecting it loosely coupled, if you will, right from the rest of, of the code base, right? And, um, and then the purpose of this piece of code is you kind of feed it in something that can become an expression like control flow or, or loops, and then it can then evaluate this loop. So you can say what you qualify to be a for loop, you give it that and, and it will just translate that to its own for loop and it will evaluate that code and, and you get whatever the for loop is supposed to space out, that's what you get back. So you kind of just specify how the iteration works. Right? Now, this probably sounds more interesting than it is, but that's anyway, well, that's what I'm I, I, I think. I think uh, some people may not uh, really understand the project you're working on. Um, so why, why would someone want to have this generic for loop that they can pass to your code? What is it actually doing? That's a very good question. Um, mainly, <laughs> I, I did this as part of my um, text user interface library that I am working on. So I'm working on this text user interface library um, because I felt like there was something missing in the world of text user interfaces. Maybe maybe not an interesting and relevant world these days, but it is, it is you know, slightly powered by nostalgia. But I felt like we have a lot of these kind of, uh, uh, we still have a lot of terminal applications laying about and you have things like Tmux, you have Vim and all these but they all have these custom formats and, and how to declare layouts and all these. So my goal was to make some kind of user interface library for the terminal where you can just ship your templates with your code. Um, and as part of doing this, I also have a very, very simple template language, which has four loops and control flows. And that's what I made this very generic library for. So if I wanted to now, I can, of course, use this somewhere else. Or people can, you know, build things with this if they ever wanted to, right? On, on account of it being very generic, right? But but uh, anyway, so that's uh, that, that's that's the one. That's the no, one. that's that's, that's, the, the, um, that's good. The so um, so you mentioned that you are uh, trying to uh, just avoid writing tests. Is that what you said? Or prove the prove that you don't need unit tests? Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. Although, although I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, because obviously there are there are business rules that you have to. Value, you have to deal with the input. The input could be numerical and, and depending on what a certain number represents, something should be, you know, a different outcome. But in my case, almost everything is based on the type system and, and the rules that are set up around that. So I think in my entire project right now for this, I have six tests and they are mainly just there to make sure that when I change something, I don't break. Um, the compiler would tell me, right? No, that's uh, that's absolutely right. So uh, the what I like to call this is compiler driven development as a kind of tongue in cheek thing. Um, I still I like that. A you know, a lot of a lot of people do test driven development. Um, I say that with Rust, I do compiler driven development. Um, but the reality is, is that you can still do compiler driven development with unit tests, right? There's no reason that your initial compiler interaction has to be you know, an example or your test project or whatever, you know, uh, you can have your unit test be the thing that kicks off the various usages of the compiler that you know that you're using, right? Um, 
But yeah, like in, exactly. in Rust, often all I'm doing is just sitting there looking at the list of errors, just going one by one. And then magically, when everything compiles and Clippy's happy, uh, things kind of work for the most part. Like, obviously, there's times you can have logic errors, but the amount of types of bugs that uh, you just eliminate from the Rust compiler is pretty pretty impressive. So, yeah, I, I often just break things and then follow the compiler until I find out that I broke it in the wrong way and I have to start over again <laughs> or, uh, or, or eventually it just magically works. I mean... Um, you know, working on Bonsai DB, it's a massive code base. Uh, and I realize some people are going to say, oh, 60,000 lines, it's not massive. Uh, it's, it's pretty big for a solo person to be main maintaining on top of the other crates that sit below it, too. Um, I think my project is half of, it's not even half of that. If you take out all the, all the comments, it's not even half of that. So you, <laughs> you definitely got me beat in lines of code there. Uh, yeah, but like, one of the, some of the stuff that I've been working on has been like adding uh, like generic associated types to some of the core traits. Um, and that sort of refactoring like just breaks everything. And, you know, the compiler works in like multiple phases. So you get like one set of errors to start with. And then so you're like, okay, only one more error. You fix it. And then all of a sudden the compiler tells you like 70 more errors. <laughs> Or, or maybe there's you like, finally finish like layer two errors, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or, or you know, you finish one crate's errors, and then all of a sudden, all the other crates are able to compile now, and you're like, oh gosh, look what I did there. <laughs> uh, you know. So, uh, but at the end of it, like you know, uh, despite what it sounds like being horrible, like if I had to do a refactoring in like I used to use Ruby, um, which you know does not have the type of compiler checks that you'd like. They're supposedly potentially bringing some to to newer versions, but. Um, but you know the 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 amount of time I would spend trying to refactor something in Ruby um, versus what I do in Rust, it's just night and day different. The the compiler just helps so much uh, through the process, and at the end of it, when you finally are able to run, you're not waiting for lurking runtime issues most of the time because uh, it, it all depends on your code, right? But you know, a lot of the times, depending on your the code patterns you follow. So it just works once you can, once you can compile. I know it feels a little bit magical sometimes when you get when you get past. The, it depends on how much um, sort of how much you're depending on uh, you know inputs. But in general, it's, you, you know you've heard the phrase if it compiles, it just works, right? And it does feel a little bit magical sometimes, right? Um, have Have you ever programmed another language that is similar to Rust when it comes to this kind of compiler driven development? Is there anything comparative? Um. I mean, most static type languages at least give you part of that, right? But in terms of like that level of like every time I hit run, it mostly just works. I've never experienced it before in another language, right? Like there's just like even C sharp was the C sharp was the one that I uh, language that I used right before I switched to Rust. Um, and it's a wonderful language in my opinion. Um, uh, it's got some, some really great features and they keep adding new stuff. It's, it's, it's got a lot of momentum behind it. Great ecosystem, you know, package manager is pretty good still. Like that's one of the benefits I consider for Rust too. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, overall I felt like C sharp was a pretty good thing, but why did I switch to Rust then? And, you know, I kind of answered a little bit in the previous episode, but you know, part of it is this ability for the compiler to just kind of almost handhold you. And then Clippy just takes it above and beyond that. I know there's linters in other languages too, but I really feel like Clippy is the kind of in a league of its own already. Um, and many people would consider it still early in development. Um, so yeah, I, I don't feel like I've had that experience in other languages, but over my years, I have 
tended to prefer statically typed languages for just having the extra checks. And, you know, as I get older and feel like I can't keep as much of my brain all the time, it's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's reassuring knowing the compiler has my back. What, what about you? Um, yeah, I was a C-sharp developer at one point as well, but I think that's quite long ago now. So back then, I don't remember if I ever had this experience with the, with the compiler being as friendly as the Rust compiler is, right? I think, um, but it could also be down to inexperience, right? I didn't program C-sharp for that long. I think it was probably about half a decade or so. And, um, and, and a lot has changed. But by the time I was done programming with C-sharp, when I left, the entity framework was new and mm. people people were kind of still a bit enamored with the whole link to SQL thing, which turned out to be a bit of a performance um, hog yeah. when it came to, to it, right? Um, so I think a lot of things has probably happened. I know that there is now lots. Of, I, th- I think, did, did someone mention that there is match statements in C-Shop? Is that true? Does uh, it have match now? I haven't used it in the last few years, um, but that sounds like, I, I believe that I've heard that they have some pattern matching now, um, but I'm not... That's that's because of you know just tangentially aware still. Um, so yeah, I know they've been adding a lot of really cool features over the years. Uh, I would not be surprised to know to hear that that's one of them. One thing I can say is that I never really enjoyed programming C sharp as much as I enjoy programming Rust. But that might be because I was doing what is what is uh, what is called enterprise <laughs> development, right? So the the um, the multitude, the layers of abstractions before you get somewhere. Now Rust obviously has its own abstractions, right? It, you know, it has zero cost abstractions, right? Um, there's a lot of abstractions in Rust, but it it never really fostered the same kind of um, strange, um, almost religious rules of abstractions, right? There's there's a there's a big difference there because you get the you have to do it this way with this language. You have to, you know, CQRS, inversional control, all these things um, that you are kind of given libraries to deal with and all that. And then in Rust, you don't really talk about these things. But, you know, if you if you don't want to pass a concrete type, then pass an infiltrate kind of thing. And it's not really the same, right? I don't feel like it's, it's quite the, the, the same level of, of, at least not mentally, right? You don't have the layers of factories and all that as far as I know either, right? I, I, I laugh. Maybe that's more of a job ask. Right? I mean, I laugh every time that I make a type that I end up naming factory in Rust, uh, just because it's like, oh, we get an enterprise now. Uh, but, uh, I, did, <laughs> I did this today and I had the same reaction and I and I was I was doing this and I'm doing this on stream as well and I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and I can feel, I can feel feel my viewers judging me when I type the word factory in there like oh my god someone is gonna make a java joke it's coming it's coming just brace for it it's coming right because I used the word factory in there no I mean ultimately it's just a programming pattern right you know and patterns uh, aren't bad in and of themselves they're just ways to get things done and you pick the right pattern for the right job and you know factory pattern technically still is something that people can use in rust so it totally works um yeah they they, they do they do absolutely and in, in in my case it is simply passing in um a string or a key to get a factory out that will produce a widget right so that's the that's the approach that i have gone with right um 
But speaking of widgets, you have been working a little bit on your user interface library as well. Is that true? Not in the past week, um, but it's still kind of recent enough that I would say that, yes, technically I've been working on it recently. <laughs> so. I was I mentioned this because we talked a little bit about the reactivity yeah. uh, before we... We did this as well, right? And it's something that I, that I kind of, I'm a little bit like, I'm, I'm a little bit unsure. I'm not quite there. Me I'm too. not quite sure I get all of it. So I need to look at the details a little bit more, but I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a really weird paradigm shift. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how well I described it in the last episode and Hey, you might be listening for the first time out there. Um, so, uh, the, the reactive model for doing user interface design, um, uh, that I'm looking at is inspired by Leptos's implementation, um, which will be linked in the show notes. Um, and, uh, it allows you to, uh, essentially, uh, write your user interface in such a way that you're responding to the changes that happen in these little like closures and you're passing around these uh, signals and stuff. And so it's a very kind of asynchronous way to design stuff. But what's kind of interesting is that, um, some of the other models that I've seen try to do this before have kind of had these view function on putting those in air quotes, um, that, you know, return something that, uh, gets, um, you know, uh, turned into some DOM representation of some sort or a virtual DOM. Uh, you've probably heard the term before. Um, and then mm. that function gets called again later. Um, once something has happened that causes it to decide that it needs to do it again. And then it does a diff of the DOM. That's how a lot of these other systems used to work. Leptos is different because they kind of just spawn the interface. Uh, so you have the DOM representation. And then when these like signals fire and callbacks happen, instead of recalling each of those functions, only your like signals are firing. And so they have code such that when you update, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, buttons or nodes, you know, caption, um, it does the right stuff for the DOM behind the scenes without having to do whole diffing of the DOM. So it's all just completely reactive to what's happening. That's where the, the name comes from. Um, and so uh, when I, uh, you know, mutual friend of ours, uh, Mod Prog, um, who I called Roland on the previous episode, uh, it's on his profile, so he's not offended, but most people will know him as Mod Prog from his contributions in the open source world. Um, he, uh, he's been, he was really enjoying it, and I wanted to see how it looked and tried it out and I showed you before we recorded, uh, cause it's hard to demonstrate, uh, on an audio podcast what it actually is. Um, yes, and, uh, it's very I, true. <laughs> the, the thing is, is that, you know, there, there are some great user interface frameworks that are in development out there. Um, as I mentioned uh, in the previous episode, my main goal, if I was going to do this, which I'm not sold on doing right now, it's an experiment again. Um, is that uh, I find that the use case of deploying to the web and having actual DOM elements so you have accessibility and all the other fun stuff that having a, a real native DOM app in the browser gives you, um, but also being able to take that same code and run it natively without the browser stack as a very compelling option. Now, I realize you're going to be replacing browser stack with some other stack, um, but to me, I would rather have direct native integrations with things like screen, uh, screen readers and other accessibility things that are built into the OS um, than having to deal with the black box that is the browser. Um, because I have this vision of just being able to have, you know, Rust code all the way down um, on all of the platforms, both web and native that I develop because I like writing Rust. And so the more, the more I can avoid things like JavaScript or TypeScript or, you know, other web technologies to target the web, the happier I'm going to be. Um, but a lot of the existing frameworks out there all uh, target, 
um, essentially just drawing a canvas in the browser, which works, but you lose some of the, the nice benefits of what a browser app really would have. So um, I realized that I kind of rehashed what I talked about last episode. Apologies if, if you're not a new listener. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still at the stage of experimentation on it that I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, uh, whether or not I really think that this is compelling enough to pursue. Um, in a, on top of our, you know, desire to start writing a game soon here. Um, and you know, the, what, what shortcuts could I take if I wanted to try to use it, uh, versus, um, you know, just using a, a web framework and targeting web to start with. And, you know, if the game actually ever ships and, uh, has any audience at all, then we worry about how to have a better native experience. Um, that's kind of what I'm leaning towards, but, um, it's also fun to play around with these things. Of course. Um, so what what do you, what are your thoughts on and I'm going to ask you a question that you you're not allowed to ask me back because I have absolutely no input on this okay. question whatsoever but I'm going to ask you um so there's there's this this I get I get this question a lot as well right what's the uh, what's the state of of GUI development in Rust and it's almost to the degree where it's built up this like GUI development is terrible in Rust but is it that great anywhere else do you know any other um any other space that has good UI development? Well, cross-platform, no. Uh, well, okay, so uh, the first five years of my professional life, I worked at a company called Real Software. They're, they're now known as Zojo, uh, and they made a product called Real Basic, which is a cross-platform compiled basic version that is actually object-oriented. Um, and it was a great place. It has a, its own compiler, spits out its own bytecode, uh, target, targeted different uh, uh, operating systems, Windows, Linux, and, uh, and Mac um, at the time that I was working there. Um, you know, it was a great place to work and very interesting. And I loved doing development there. Um, I don't love the language as much as I love Rust uh, nowadays. And I did actually dust it off to try it for a cross-platform project that I was working on a few years ago. Um, before I quit my job. Um, and, you know, it was still a pretty good experience overall. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices with uh, cross-platform frameworks. Um, you know, sometimes you end up with, uh, you know, sort of the um, uh, kind of the least common denominator sort of thing, where you, lowest common denominator, where you end up getting, you know, kind of just the very basic features that uh, every platform supports, but then you don't, you aren't able to take advantage of specific features that only one platform supports, or, you know, there's other limitations you might have on those cross-platform things. So I've never really had a truly wonderful cross-platform experience since then. And, um, that's partly because I haven't really tried some of the things like phone gap. Um, but I don't know if those were actually that great either. Um, you know, I've, I've always preferred trying to make stuff that felt more native um, as much as I could, which is a little bit of a departure with my goals of GUI, because um, I think that in today's landscape of user interfaces, what does native even mean? Um, you know, you look at, you know, Windows and you've got like three different, uh, you know, APIs to do desktop development. You look at Mac and you've got one, but that's, you know, that's actually, you know, technically you have two now because they, uh, they allow you to do the universal apps that target both, uh, the iPad and, uh, the desktop. Um, so yeah, technically that's, uh, that's something that has multiple APIs now too. Um, and then Linux, don't even get me started there. Do you want GTK, QT, <laughs> you know, like, so 
<laughs> so uh, at the end of the day, what does native even really mean? Um, and so I, I think what's more important um, from a building a product perspective is that uh, the product functions similarly on all the platforms so that when you have a user who reaches out with, uh, hey, I don't know how to do X, Y, Z, you don't have to start by saying, what operating system are you on? Because when you have to do that to start your troubleshooting steps, that means all your documentation has all these caveats in it. And it means that your customer service just has the extra overhead of trying to interact with that. So in my opinion, I want something that behaves similarly on all platforms. But obviously, you don't want it to behave exactly the same because things like, you know, control C versus command C on the Mac, uh, you need to have the native, you know, text behaviors and keyboard shortcuts and stuff supported. So. Uh, that was a long, long answer to say, no, I don't think there's good solutions in other languages out there. Maybe that's also why uh, things like Electrum became very popular mm -hmm. uh, very quickly as well, because all of a sudden, um, and, and the people are referring to these as, as native applications, because all of a sudden we have access to, to always specific uh, functionality. We have access to to disk space mm -hmm. and, and all sorts of things, right? And then even though the interface is technically just a website, right? Yep, and I feel I feel remiss if we didn't mention Tauri, uh, which is uh, kind of the the Rust only uh, implementation of a of an electron like concept. It's much lighter weight, um, and frankly, if we were going to build uh, a web based thing, it would be either that or Dioxys um, that I would use to package up um, for uh, for the desktop right now. Uh, but I mean that 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 right there shows uh, we got two two options right there that are pretty good, uh, pretty pretty well matured for doing uh, deployments of DOM based desktop apps, which is great. Um, so I mean I feel like the ecosystem in Rust is young, um, and if you want actual native, which what does that mean? But if you want actual native, that's a bit sketchier at the moment. There's great in development frameworks, but it, uh, last time I played with a lot of them. Um, there were a lot of rough edges uh, around what I would hope would have been there, things like tab focusing and and, and things like that, um, uh, which to me, you know, every, everyone has their own priorities. Uh, tab focusing was one of the first things that I did in my uh, initial pass of GUI last time I tried it because um, I had just different priorities. Um, I knew that was going to be a tricky problem and I wanted to, to front load the problem. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that we're in a good state with Rust GUI, but we're still really early. Um, so there's just a lot of rough edges. And so, you know, a year from now, I'll be even less tempted to try starting a framework from scratch. Um, so it's like, I think that this is probably going to be one of the last experiments that I might see if anyone else wants to participate in. So. No, I know that's fair enough. I mean, it is not a small undertaking to start. A no, it's massive. I know um, uh, what's his name? Rafe uh, Levin has mm -hmm. been working uh, tirelessly on Druid and Xylem, and these are, I think he called them research projects. And I've been yeah. trying to follow this a little bit, um, seeing, and I've, uh, I've, I, I will uh, confess to take inspiration from some of the work he has done, the part of it that I understood at least. Right? Um, so I've looked at it, and I think that's very interesting as well. But it is a lot of work, and and I think these things are going on for years and years, right? And and, they, and, and I'm writing just... a database already, and we're talking about writing a multiplayer <laughs> game. So yeah, you know, I might be stretched a little thin if I take if I if I actually pursue that. And everyone knows that writing a multiplayer game is simply just a weekend project, right? That yeah, is exactly. Just, you do it, and then you slap done. it on you there. You're done. Yep. Right? Yeah. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So that that is we haven't we haven't talked a lot about that. And uh, you know what? There is one of the things that that has come up when we talk about multiplayer game development. And there is some, there is one thing that is uh, kind of ubiquitous in the in the game development world when it comes to multiplayer. And I am talking, of course, if we're talking about not web based games solely, but you know games built in uh, the various game engines. And that is that people always use UDP because they want to avoid head of line blocking but we're not going to use udp are we uh i mean yes and no um we're initially focusing web sockets um because that's just easy and simple um and that is gonna you know lead to some negative experiences in certain circumstances um <laughs> so you know you would never want to make a fighting game like a you know a 2d fighting game like motor combat or street fighter those types of things um you know, you'd never want to make one of those using TCP. And you know, what what was the you know blocking thing that Hoggle mentioned? Um, I always don't. I never actually remember the name of that head, thing. Head of line. Head of line. There you go. I know the concept, but I always forget what it's actually called. Um, you know, there's there's other issues too um, uh, that that you mitigate by switching away from TCP. Um, uh, the the whole act structure of of TCP, where you know every packet has to be act. Um, by the receiver um, causes uh, latency uh, spikes when packets are dropped um, and things like that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the the benefit of using uh, UDP is uh, is quite significant um, uh, if you can get uh, you know I don't know TCP does so much for you just to to, to make it easy to to have a persistent uh, connection that uh, guarantees ordered delivery of bytes. That's like that's what it's good at. <laughs> um, UDP, however, uh, makes no guarantees. You send a packet, it may never get there, and so you have to build in the logic of resending things that need to get resent. But in a lot of multiplayer games, sometimes there's data that you can just ignore because it's outdated already by the time that the next packet arrives. Um, and so that's one of the benefits of of using something like UDP is you can. Um, determine what ones you want to actually be lossy and not have to worry about being sent or ones that you do want to make sure you resend if they're not received. Um, thankfully, we're in a day and age where we don't need to roll our own UDP implementation to take advantage of it. Um, there is something called Quick that's becoming quite popular, um, and Bonsai has it built in as one of its networking options. Um, so we See, will that's use that. really interesting. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, so Quick is built on UDP, um, and uh, it's it has built-in TLS support like HTTP. Well, sorry, <laughs> HTTP doesn't have it built-in. Uh, I mean, it's that uh, it uses the same type of TLS that the web browser already uses for its HTTP communications, um, but it's uh, built in a different, a slightly different way because obviously UDP doesn't have that same persistent quality, so the encryption has to be done in a way that each packet or datagram is uh, encrypted individually. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it has all, all sorts of fun levers and knobs to try to tweak, you know, congestion, you know, what you do in, when the network's congestion and stuff. And overall, when you look at benchmarks of uh, how quick performs versus TCP, um, it's pretty freaking awesome. Um, but it's not perfect. And the main issue with it right now from a performance standpoint is purely that um, the uh, kernels of various operating systems have native support for TCP in their stack. Um, and so you actually get slightly better performance when the kernel can handle a bunch of the prep protocol overhead without you having to worry about on the on the application side. Um, 
but right now the kernels don't know anything except for UDP, TCP, and you know raw sockets and stuff like that. Um, and so you know you end up having to have your uh, user land code switched back to from the kernel more frequently um, than if the, some of the quick handling was done at the kernel level. That's like really the the main downside right now. But in the benchmarks, that's barely noticeable because all the other benefits uh, kind of make make up for it, so to speak. So I'm really excited about Quick. But the problem is that Quick isn't actually in the browser yet. Um, people may have heard of HTTP3, but this is where it gets really fun. Um, that is actually HTTP over Quick, but that implementation does not support the uh, lossy datagram flow. So you can't actually create that kind of, you know, like send the world state over and over every tick, uh, every few, you know, a little bit of time to the clients and just let them, you know, ignore the outdated ones if they come in out of order, um, you know, and then not care if they don't get it because, hey, they're going to probably get the next one, you know, and it's going to be, it's already, it's already in flight or whatever, right? Um, so, you know, but since it's not already in the browser in a way that we can consume that way, um, we're going to, end up needing to support WebSockets in the browser, which also Bonsai supports too. So um, so ultimately we are gonna support multiple networking protocols, um, I believe. Um, but if we mostly target web to start with, it might be mostly WebSockets. Um, yeah, it's kind of complex. It is kind of complex. Anything to do with networking is kind of complex, right? So uh, should we? Should we? I have I have a few questions here from from uh, from people. Should we? Should we tackle some of these questions? Yeah, actually, that? before before we do that, let's let's say how do we get some questions? Um, how we, do uh, we get? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where did these questions come from? Right. Um, so do you yeah, tell us where we, did we get questions? Exactly. When we recorded the last episode, we uh, didn't even have our Discord community created, uh, but we actually have created Discord community. We've also uh, set up a location on GitHub discussions uh, that people, if they you know have an account on github and want to use that to interact with us um you can ask questions or provide feedback that way uh we also have an email address podcast at wayofthecrab.com um and so all these things will be linked in the show notes uh we welcome all feedback uh and 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 questions um we won't necessarily answer every question on the air so to speak um uh, uh and we'll do our best to to answer as many of them over time as we can um so yeah we welcome we'll, we'll welcome them and hopefully uh We'll have a good chunk of each episode uh, to interesting questions, and we have some great ones, like like Toggle said. So, yeah, which one do you want to start with, Toggle? We can we can jump into one here from Opus Mag, who asks, "Where on the to do list should learning Rust be for new programmers?" Oh, right. Um, I think I have a little bit of a controversial take here um, because whenever I see this question come up on like Reddit or whatever. Uh, I I hear most people say, yeah, you should start with another language. And that might be true right now. But I think that the main thing that's missing is I don't think I don't think Rust is necessarily harder than other languages. I think the reason why it's perceived as it being as it it's being harder is that people have preconceived notions about how things are supposed to work because they're coming from other languages. I wonder if we actually had truly beginner friendly you know, assuming the person has no knowledge of other existing programming languages or even knows how to program at all. So if we had truly beginner level materials that taught Rust like we do for, uh, you know, computer science courses that teach Java or C++. I actually contend that people wouldn't struggle as much with the borrow checker if that's what they got introduced to from the start. So I, I would hesitate to off the top, just right now, today, recommend that a new programmer immediately start learning Rust. But at the same time, I 
I wouldn't necessarily, if they were that interested in it, tell them to go learn something else first. I think that with, you know, with enough uh, persistence, uh, they, you know, a new programmer should probably still be able to, to, to learn Rust, at least enough to be moderately effective. Um, there's, there are ways to avoid um, some of the, the harder things to master with Rust. Uh, I would say for the first year of working with Rust, I tried my best to not have to worry about lifetimes, uh, which meant that I had a lot of arcs and clones <laughs> and stuff. Um, uh, you know, and so I, I think that there are some shortcuts that can be done to like kind of just um, avoid having to learn certain things uh, while you're just, you know, learning other things, I guess, still. So, you can, I don't yeah, know. You can, you can sort of procrastinate some, yeah. some learning material, couldn't you? That, that's totally what I did because I didn't read the Rust book when I started learning Rust. I just started doing, um, you know, and. And there's, you know, a lot of code out there that needs to get refactored because of that. But, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it also, I don't know. That's just the, that's the way that I learned the best is by actually getting my hands dirty and trying stuff. Um, so I don't know. What, what about you? What do you think uh, about teaching new programmers Rust? Well, that, that is a, that is a good one, right? I think, uh, well, you touched on a very interesting point there. Uh, because whenever someone asks the question, where should I start, uh, where should I start learning Rust? they will get a link to the book, right? And the, the book, capitalized, right, mm -hmm. is the sort of the de facto way of getting introduced to Rust. But you kind of touching on the idea that, that maybe there should be something before the book. Well, not necessarily before. I think the book, I, I think that there's just different audiences for technical writing. Um, and the book is, uh, I think, identifies itself as a uh, as the audience being people who have programmed some before, uh, but want to learn Rust. Um, they don't try to teach every concept from the ground up. They do a good job of introducing concepts, though. Um, but they are, they, there are parts where they... Uh, kind of mention how other languages work in some cases. Um, it's been a while since I poked through there. Um, you know, and like I said, I never actually fully read the book, but there are certainly, I definitely read the lifetime section multiple times over the years. Um, <laughs> Chapter nine, know. I believe. Uh, it's been, it's been long enough. I don't remember, but yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add with, with the uh, window where to learn Rust? Where on the to-do list? So, so, um, so where on the to-do list should learning Rust be for new programmers, right? There should be the step one, learn Rust. That's the first thing you should do <laughs> before you even turn on the computer. We'll go to learn, to yes, learn Rust. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you want to pick one of the questions? Yeah. Uh, so I guess we should have mentioned that was, uh, from listener Opus Mag and he actually asked, uh, or sorry, they asked multiple, um, uh, great questions. So this is another one, um, uh, from them, uh, which is, uh, what is it about Rust that is so alluring to many programmers? I, I actually made a comment about, uh, or rather, I made a little note next to this question where I wrote uh, the phrase motorbike helmets. I have no idea why. So I, I didn't either, which is that. why I just ignored that. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing that you didn't say motorbike helmets as part of that question, right? Um, but what what is it about Rust that is so alluring to many programmers? I think it's it's a mixed bag, right? We have people coming from dynamic languages who want to um, who want to program you know, embedded system, or they want to program something that doesn't require an interpreter. They want to compile a binary they can ship, or they want to do something with the uh, possibility of improving the performance, right? I say with the possibility, because one of the first Rust programs I wrote was 
performing worse than, than the equivalent Python code <laughs> that I wrote, right? Um, and that is no fault of Rust, right? That is that is entirely on me. I don't think anyone's going to question that. But um, I think you want to have the possibility, right? But at the same time, when we look at other languages, um, they can seem a little bit intimidating because there's a lot of concepts to take on board there. And these are runtime issues, right, that you have to deal with. If you misunderstand pointers, for instance, you're not in, 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 uh, in a runtime, with a runtime issue rather than a compiler, right, um, in, in some languages. And I think Rust kind of does a great job at hand-holding you and making sure that you write, uh, you know, functioning uh, race, um, not, not race, what's it called, data race-free code, right? So you can have race conditions, but... Um, uh, not data races, right? So, so, so multi-threaded code is easy to write, and well, I say easy. It is easy to get it right. Okay, so <laughs> I, I think it is very hard to write correct multi-threaded code in a lot of languages, but in Rust, it is very hard to write incorrect multi-threaded code. And when I say incorrect, I'm talking about something that results in undefined behavior. Um, deadlocks is not part of that, right? You can right. very easily. Uh, cause a deadlock. You just lock a mutex and never unlock it and try to access that from another thread and, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very, very easy thing to do, right? Um, but, uh, but yes, I think that's probably why it's so interesting to a lot of programmers because now we have a language that looks and feels very high level, uh, but allows you to write uh, code directly for for hardware, right? You can write this for embedded stuff and and and, and all these kind of things, right? So, so yeah, I think that's why Rust is so interesting or alluring to too many programmers, right? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, you you hit uh, on what I was wanting to bring up, which is uh, that it, it feels like we're writing high level code, even though what's actually happening is very low level. Um, you know, the the one of the gripes that you know, going back to the previous question. Um, you know, of, uh, you know, learning Rust, uh, you know, some people point to how we have all these different integer types, you know, U32, U64, U size, et cetera, um, of all these choices as being um, hard for a newer person to understand. And I agree. That's something you have to, it, it's, it's, it's mental overhead of something you have to learn, right? Um, but that also kind of demonstrates that, yeah, this actually is a low level language. We have, we get to pick our exact integer widths and everything. Um, uh, but at the same time, like, all the Rust errors and the compiler and stuff just really helps make it feel like, I mean, I'm writing a database, which sounds like it should be really low level. But I tell you, if you go and dig into almost any piece of feature of, 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 of Bonsai, it, it looks really high level, the code. Like, it, it, I feel like almost anyone should be able to poke in Bonsai and understand it. Yes, it's a big project. It'll take a little bit to understand where everything is. But, you know, it's fairly navigable. And I don't feel that way when I go poke at a, a massive C++ code base on GitHub or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, it's. I just feel like it uh, feels like a, a, you know, high-level language. And I don't have to worry about as much of the low-level gotchas that I ever had to in previous, you know, C and C++ days. You know what? Before we move on to the next um the next listener question. I have a question for you then, because this mm-hmm. this is something I've been asked a few times as well, and, and I wonder what your take is on this. What's the first thing you do to get familiar with some other project, someone else's project? What's the first thing you do? I mean, it, de- it depends on the project. Um, but, uh, I mean, with Rust, a lot of the times I'll go see their documentation, like the, the Rust doc, um, and kind of poke around a little bit there. 
So yeah, I, I guess you know if I'm if I'm trying to look at a potential crate for something that I don't already have a oh that's the crate I use for X Y Z problem right um, if I if I'm so I'm trying to you know figure out what crate to use I'll start with the documentation usually um, and see if it looks like you know, does it solve the problems I need you know et cetera. Um, and if it doesn't, then there's the question is, are there, are there other libraries, you know, and if not, should I potentially try to improve this instead? And at that point, you know, there's the, now you need to be a bit more familiar with the code. And that's when I'll usually end up actually checking it out and opening it up because having the ability to have rust analyzer, uh, allow me to jump to a definition, <laughs> uh, is just invaluable when trying to figure out how things are connected together. Um, so yeah, I, I then just kind of start poking around. If they have examples, it's a good way to kind of look in and, you know, be able to do jump to definition on various things that you see in the examples and just kind of start digging in from there. Um, and then usually if I want to contribute, I have my idea of what I want to start working on and I will start hacking away at it. Um, I think it's probably pretty hard to, you know, jump in and get familiar with a project if you don't have a goal of what you're going to do once you're familiar with the project um for me anyways for me i usually want to have a, a goal of what i'm trying to learn while looking at it when i'm starting to poke what about you um i think i always start when i when i when i'm looking at a project i always start for some reason with the cargo tumble file oh, yeah. to see what kind of dependencies they have just to get an idea for what to do. Now, obviously, what you're doing by reading documentation probably saves a lot of time instead of trying to guess what it is. Normally, so I, but I actually do that too, but it's I do it differently. I don't actually look at the cargo tomal. I see on crates.io or lib.rs uh, the, the, the listing. They oft, they'll, they'll list the dependencies right there and which ones have feature flags and stuff. And so that's that's usually before I get to the documentation, I've done a search on one of those you know places to find crates. Um, and that they helpfully show a list of dependencies. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll sometimes evaluate it a little bit there too. Um, but yeah, keep going. Sorry for interrupting, interrupting. That's all right. Oh, you see, I'm a creature of habit. So to, to me, uh, as you mentioned, you mentioned this, are you, are you a LibRS or a crates IO person? If I am looking for green fields right now, I go to LibRS. So like if I, if I really don't know the crate I'm looking for, I start with LibRS because I find that the search results are slightly better. Um, I actually have a uh, uh, a little project that I was working on that is actually a crates IO uh, searcher thing that uh, is powered by Bonsai and uh, and uh, Tantivy for full text searching as well. Um, and I, I get surprisingly good results out of it. Um, so I'll sometimes hit that project, which no one else has access to, <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of these days I'll, I'll deploy it. Uh, but it's just kind of a weird state cause I want to add full text indexing probably via Tantivy, um, to Bonsai someday. And right now, while I was wanting it to be a, a good, you know, a dog fooding thing um, for uh, for testing bonsai, um, it, it's actually more of a Tantivy test right now because <laughs> a lot of the full text stuff actually <laughs> provides just like it's magical how small the Tantivy indexes are um, for doing full text uh, lookups. It's, it's it's impressive. So um, I have not used it. How does it compare to something like Elasticsearch? I haven't really touched Elasticsearch directly other than having used it as part of a, like an ingestion system for log stuff way back in the day. Um, so I don't really know much about Elasticsearch. Um, what attracts me to Tantivy is that I have a nice, easy to use Rust interface that allows me to, you know, 
power it directly, um, you know, setting up schemas and everything. And I really don't know what Elasticsearch offers. I know it's a powerful, powerful set of software, though. Something that started out as a recipe, recipe search tool that he made for his wife. It's pretty impressive how far <laughs> that went. Well, I just heard an interview on another... Well, sorry, just a random thing that I just find fun is like the origins of of tech is weird. I was just listening to an interview on another podcast. I'll I'll link to the specific uh, thing in the show notes um, where uh, the the person was interviewing the creator of LZ4 and ZStood, which are the like, I would say, arguably some of the best compression algorithms out there. Uh, Do you know where LZ4 was initially created to what it was created to solve? No. He wanted to make larger calculator games for his graphing calculator, and so he needed to have a compressor to be able to store it. <laughs> it's like we, we we have we have that to think for why we have LZ four in the world. Um, and then that Z's, that is a yeah. wonderful story. Um, are you ready for another user question? So yeah, let's go. Viewer question. Sure. Listener question. Oh yeah. my god! So many mediums. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Another question. All right. So Scott B asks, what is Rust missing to make it a replacement for C? Oh, that is a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I'm the best to answer this um, because it's been a while since I've really used C. Um, I think that my understanding of this, and so it'd be interesting if we hear, uh, if, if you think that we missed something on this topic and you think that it's worth potentially bringing up, definitely give us some feedback. Um, my, my best guess of what we're really missing right now um, is uh, just more portability. Um, so, L- you know, Rust uh, C uses the LLVM backend um, to generate its code, and LLVM just doesn't have as many target platforms as um, as like GCC does. Um, and so, we have some community projects that uh, have. I think there's two different ones, if I remember right. I, I'm not. I'm only kind of. I just see the headlines on on Reddit or you know R- this week in Rust sort of stuff. Um, that, uh, there is, I think a project to, uh, use GCC as a backend to the Rust compiler as it is today. Um, and there's also another, uh, project that is aiming to be a separate, um, implementation of the Rust language that sits atop GCC. Um, and so those are kind of two separate goals and they're both very, uh, you know, good things to have for the community, in my opinion. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I think that's the only thing that we really get out of that is just additional, you know, target CPUs, like, you know, GCC just targets like everything under the sun, <laughs> whereas all of EM is, is, uh, you know, they have a lot of targets, but it's, you know, mostly newer stuff, um, as opposed to the really old, like, I think you can use GCC to compile for like the old NES and stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, it's crazy <laughs> what you can do. Um, so yeah, but you know, one of the things that attracted me to Rust is that they had the whole unsafe concept, which to me it was pretty much all you needed to break out, so to speak, um, of the Rust ecosystem into whatever you needed. Because um, in theory, you can put you know raw assembly uh, that's getting called inside of those unsafe blocks, right? Um, and so I, I think that we're pretty close in terms of just raw features of the language uh, that we need. And that mostly what we're missing for compatibility is, you know, compatibility with other things, but those other things don't impact me. So I'm, I feel like it actually is a good replacement for what I would have used C for um, already. What about, what about you? What do you think? Oh, well, since I don't really program C, I don't know. But I think you pretty you, you did a good summary of, of, of my understanding um, of what would be 
what would be needed. So mostly it would be to have more uh, compiler targets, right? That you can, yeah, I think so. You can target, right? And that's not um, a that's not a that, that's I'm not sorry. a panacea because you know the standard library still has to have support on those platforms for us to get you know stud to work. But you know there are the, for the no stud environments where you don't you know have any of the, the nice hand holding that we get there. You only get core and maybe alloc if you're <laughs> lucky. Um, you know uh, that's where we would get a lot more of the support just by having a GCC backend, for example. Um, you you just be able to target those embedded platforms where you. You still have to bring your own stood li- standard library, um, but you know that's still still a step in the right direction, at least for for what some people need to target. So uh, I think we have one more uh, viewer question. Going back to Opus Mag, um, uh, uh, is there anything missing from Rust that you would be happy was included in a future update? So generally, I don't. I, I'm very relaxed when it comes to these things, right? I I just go with whatever the language provides me and and whatever the standard library has. I'll use that. I don't mind things that some people are sort of nitpicky about a missing feature here and there or whatever. But there is one thing that I've been waiting forever to stabilize, and that is drain filter. That is the one thing <laughs> that I would be happy because I had to use this at least, I think at least about five times. Um, so drain filter, that is something that I would love to see in an update. Can you, uh, can you attempt to describe what drain filter actually does? Um, Sure, uh, sure, sure. Because it's on, um, on VEC, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So you have a VEC of values and you want to you want to remove specific values that fill some kind of criteria, right? So you can it's almost like you're filtering, but you're also removing these values. So given, for example, that you have a list of of elements that are and some of these are marked as completes, so you want to remove them and you wanna maybe transfer them to another list or you want to uh, more importantly, you want to just use them once and then sort of dispose of them. Now, you can't really do this um, with Rust. You can filter, mute, and then mutate them. And then you have to go and find them and remove them, right? So it becomes quite cumbersome, right? Uh, but with drain filter, you say, okay, I want to filter everything that matches this criteria. And then it's going to remove them and return them. And I think that is such a nice feature, right? Um, I think that it's stuck somewhere in sort of a bike shedding or not quite certain how they're going to fix the or, or like update the, the, the memory that's allocated for the vector because they have to shift things down, right? I think that that mm. might be what they're stuck on. I don't know. But but this is one of those things that for some reason, I, I've been waiting for this feature forever. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it's ever going to be released. Um, yeah, I... Okay, so... Well, I was I was going to say what I might be looking forward to. Um, the 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 main thing that I find a little hairy in Rust is still um, what people sometimes call coloring functions. Um, specifically, when you have async and non-async code, and you're trying to interact with them together, um, sometimes you might call what is considered a blocking call from an async call, and that's a kind of a no-no. Uh, not always. You, you got to be careful with what what actually is a no-no because some some blocks are okay. Um, but you know that that sort of coloring really impacts the inter uh, the like the API interface of Bonsai. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because uh, fairly recently there was a, a blog post talking about sta- getting towards stabilizing um, some of the features towards having better support for that. Um, so I wanted to at least mention that and throw it in the the show notes as well. Um, I don't think that it's a great topic to dive into on a podcast because there 
they're pretty uh they're pretty interesting uh language features that are are being added um that I think would be kind of difficult to try to summarize on on an audio only podcast. Uh so I'll let uh, other podcasts try to tackle that one. Um but yeah, you know from <laughs> a, more a from visual a, podcast. Exactly. From from a day-to-day perspective, um I sometimes will let Rust Analyzer autocomplete something for me and then the compiler's like, "Nope, that's not stable yet." And I get a little disappointed. But most of the time, that uh, I, there's other, there's easy other workarounds or a crate that does a similar thing that it can go leverage. So it's usually I, I don't really find myself really craving new features out of Rust that often. Uh, I feel pretty spoiled because some of the ones that came out in the past, you know, uh, year or two have been quite awesome. So this is true. But it, a sign of uh, um, a, a good is a good sign when the new features that are coming out aren't big. Because yes. we have, we've, we've sort of stabilized a lot already, and the language is certainly ready for prime time, as far as I'm concerned. And it's more about the things that come out. You know, we stabilize more const functions, and you know these kind of things. And it's not so much about these revolutionary new features. And of course, uh, like you mentioned, um, there there will be large feature coming out, right? When 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 we stabilize things around. Async, right? I think. Uh, yeah, async but at the same time, they're 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 trying to approach it from a very iterative uh, standpoint. They're like the, there's like kind of three separate milestones. I think that blog post called out that they're working on independently that works towards this overall you know picture of how you deal with colored functions. Um, and so you know that iterative approach I think works really well. I mean the Rust release cycles every six weeks is just amazing in my opinion. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of fun that you might get part of the overall feature set, uh, which allows you to do some new things. Um, but you know, and then eventually all of a sudden everything's unblocked and we can now have you know full annotations of async versus non-async or whatever, however it works, right? Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to those coming out, but I'm also not like. You know, I, I love Rust as it is, and even if they never came out, I kind of would be okay with it. So, yeah, no, that sounds good. That sounds good. On that note, I think it's time for us to wrap up. So, yeah. I want to say thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Goodbye. <laughs>